Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello again, and welcome to Down With D&D. My name is Sean Merwin, your host for today, along with my co-host, Mr. Teos Abadia. Hello, Teos. Hey, Sean. How's it going? It is going swimmingly well, swimmingly well. I am looking forward to 2021, probably like a lot of people are. Yeah, I mean, it, it is that promise. It's that rainbow over in that direction. Right. With, with a vicious, rabid gnome at the end of it, probably. Well, there's one here already, so might as well keep going towards <laughs> the rainbow. <laughs> hey, why don't we jump right into some news? And you yeah. wanted to mention PAX. Yeah, so PAX has uh, done what is probably a pretty smart uh, positioning. So they're saying, hey, if COVID happens, forget about it. Nothing's going on next year. Right, it'll all be remote. It'll, you know, we'll, we'll do other plans. But if, if COVID lessens, we're moving PAX East to June third to sixth. Mm-hmm. Then you have PAX West on September third to sixth. Uh, we'll have a date for Australia whenever we finish discussing with the government. There'll be no uh, PAX in in Texas. PAX okay. South, I think it is. Yep. Um, and then unplugged is December tenth to twelfth. Cool. So. You know, they gave those dates out, and I think they've tried to be reasonable about, you know, we're, we're, we've got to do something planning-wise, but if it's not safe, we won't do it. And I think it's a good reminder of, of the tough job that conventions have, trying to balance all these different factors and, and manage their business, because you can only imagine the impact for these companies that, that create these experiences for us at conventions, right? Especially the really big ones, the Gen Cons, the Origins, the Paxes, and those companies that work for them mm-hmm. uh, or rely upon them, whether it's selling products there or services that take place there. Uh, Pax works with ReadPop. Um, you know, these are huge impacts for these entities that that we think of as just always being around, right? There will always be Gen Con. Well, this is pretty hard for an entity like that. Yeah, I mean, if you had told me five years ago even two years ago yeah there's not going to be any gen con next year i would have thought well you know why what for what reason would that happen it would have to be pretty you know catastrophic in like the city itself something must have happened in the city whereas now this is happening world over yeah and yeah, it, it is tough. And it also makes me wonder what sort of role online play will go, uh, will have going forward for those conventions. I've heard people like Dave Chris say, you know, even when I'm able to run Winter Fantasy or uh, Gen Con or uh, Origins, where there's still going to be an online component because there are too many people out there who we could be serving uh, with an online portion of the, a show like that to to ignore yeah and i think there's a mix of that i mean even way back when there was you know an incidence of uh illness at pax west and i think it, it impacted how many people went the next year and so i think that even if we have 
uh, robust vaccination going on, there are going to be a number of people who think, yeah, maybe, maybe not this year, or maybe not even the next year. So we'll see how it goes, right? But yeah, I, I agree with you. There's going to be a, a healthy online component to, mm-hmm. I think, all of these conventions. Yeah, and and even if because of the pandemic and maybe a slow response with vaccinations, uh, you know, even if there's like three people and a set of dice you know, playing fatal. <laughs> Somebody is going to be there wanting to play just because it's a game. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I think one of the tough things that conventions will have, especially if they must have a large component of what's going on in the virtual space, is how to make that online play feel like that convention or entity in some way, right? We've seen where these one Discord server looks a lot like another Discord server. Right. And it's hard in your mind to keep in mind the difference between D&D Celebration, Gen Con, GameholeCon, right? That they, they can also right. blend together. And, and I think that's something that these entities will also struggle with is how to have that branding sounds wrong, but, but you know, to, to have that culture side, that presence of, of who they are. Right. Uh, yeah. Reflected yeah, in the online. Yeah. Maybe to have uh, running, be running an epic, say. Uh, with an online component as well as an in-person component, you know, the people that can pull that off will make the online version feel to the people at home like they are, you know, taking part in something bigger than just them in their living room. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And Watsi has a new release, although it is on the DMs Guild and not uh, in game stores, called... Muck's Guide to Everything He Learned from Tasha, an activity book that raises money for Extra Life. So what what did you uh, see in that book? Uh, This is similar to the other Muck's book that was released last year, I think. Mm -hmm. Life blurs together. Um, I'm pretty sure there was a last year. But back then, I think there was a Muck's Guide. (laughs) And um, that is an activity book. It's, it's a perfect for things like holidays where you're sitting around wanting to do. And a large part of it is that you can color every page. But then you have adventure hooks created by Adam Lee, puzzles, coloring pages, and, and more all in there. So it's like a big activity book to spend your time on. And it, all of the money goes to Extra Life for children's hospitals. Yeah, and that's available again on the DMs Guild. You can just go to dmsguild.com and search Muck's Guide to Everything. Over the last week, Mr. M.T. Black uh, had a blog post about uh, writer output, looking at legendary writers of fiction and comparing that, how many words they wrote compared to how much a game designer might want to uh, put out during a session in order to get in a good day's work. Um, This is always interesting to me, you know, coming from a fiction writing education you know how how these things we do are similar and different from from a fiction writer uh what did you think of the article yeah i i welcome this because i do sometimes wonder i mean i know through friendships the output of some people in in our industry that's just incredible right and and you and i are probably thinking of the very same person rob schwab yep yeah i mean the legendary machine um, I don't know what the words are, but it's a lot. And, and then, and then people like me, uh, but, but it was funny because when this article hit, 
and I was looking at this, oh, Hemingway wrote about 500 words a day and Rice about 3,000 a day. And I was talking to about with my daughter because she has a project where she has to write 4,000 words. She's like, well, how much did you write today? I'm like, I don't know. And I went and looked and I was like, oh, 3,700. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't spend the whole, the whole day on it, but I was like, right. oh, because I rewrote this big section of a thing. And and so I was kind of surprised and, and it was good for me to think, wow, okay, I, so I can hit that upper level because I feel very inefficient when I write. Like I, I, I like what I write, but it takes me a while to work through it. So yeah, I think get, getting past that fear of inefficiency is the first step in being efficient, if, if that <laughs> makes sense, because everyone writes differently and every project has a different need depending on where you are in the project. There, there are going to be some days when you're working on a project, uh, and this is true probably in game design as much as in fiction, uh, where you end the day with fewer words than you started. So you're actually losing words. But that's the point. Yeah. You're, you're losing words that you don't need to make the product better, or you're losing words that are bad in order to start writing words that are good. So I've always found that how many words per day, especially in game design, can be a little bit uh, of an illusion where, you know, I have had days where I've sat down and re- I think my, my record is like 15,000 words in a day. And that is sitting down in the morning and then going straight through. Um, I, if, if I'm on a project where there's a lot of math involved or it's more, you know, tinkering with rules or, or getting a stat block for several monsters, if, if I can get a thousand words, I'm happy. If I'm writing an adventure with a lot of fluff and I don't get 5,000 words, then I'm, I know I haven't quite done what I need to do. It, it all depends. Uh, yeah, and it is tricky. Like, I'll have days where the first thing I want to do is read over what I did yesterday mm-hmm. and make a few edits. And so, you know, there's time that word-wise is very little, but quality-wise is very important. Sure. And it also gets me into the mindset of the continuity of what's now the next piece that the reader needs to get to. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's all very beneficial, but none of it is many words, but I might spend an hour on that. Yeah. Uh, and then I might pause and research something and you know all these things happen that aren't words but are integral to the process and 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 on any given day have more or less of that which changes it a lot yeah i mean i'll i'll go for a walk with my wife after work and we'll be you know a mile and a half into a two mile walk and she'll be like you're writing aren't you and i'm like yes i am am so writing right now i'm sorry Uh, but yeah Yeah. that's part of the process It, it really is yeah yeah so. And then, you know, what I liked about this article is at the end, um, and, and oh, I should say that MT says at one point that that um, TSR, mm-hmm. uh, the company that D&D started with, uh, broke up tasks into module units of 24,000 words, roughly 32 published pages, and that as an employee, you were expected to crank out a, a unit a month, which is maybe like 1,200 words per day. When you think of all the meetings, all the other things that are going on, play testing and all that, that's probably pretty high. Yep. Um, and my guess is that it resulted in people doing you know, work at home and things like that to, to really make it happen. I, I'm sure. I was so confused the first project I worked on when when I saw this MU, MU. I was like, is this some strange British, you know, <laughs> like a stone or? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's uh, a module unit. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but but MT thinks you know twelve hundred words a day is probably a good initial thing to sort of shoot for, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's around an average between that sort of Hemingway and Anne Rice extremes. Yeah. So it, you know, it's an interesting some, somewhere, somewhere between Hemingway and Anne Rice is where you <laughs> somewhere you can just do I that. Guess. Yeah, but they also wrote very different. Yeah. Yeah. Hemingway has many, a lot of short stories and very sparse, uh, where the actual word you chose is the most important thing. And, you know, Anne Rice, nothing fine writer, uh, but she wasn't, you know, writing to a specific standard that, uh, that Hemingway was. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, the other thing is how empty ends this, which is by saying that if you look at 1200 words a day and you're assuming 10 sets a word, which a lot of places still don't pay, but it's becoming more of a standard floor. That's $120 a day, roughly minimum wage in some US states. Um, and he concludes the article with the sentence, the industry is not well paid. <laughs> I cannot argue with that, with that statement. And speaking of industry, uh, that brings us to the final bit of news, which I wanted to share with everyone. Very first time being publicly announced here, uh, starting in January of 2021, I am going to be the new executive lead designer for Ghostfire Gaming, uh, which, I, which I am super excited about. Um, they are a relatively new company. They have done a couple of Kickstarters for a setting, a 5e campaign setting called Grim Hollow. Uh, I was not looking for full-time work, but full-time work found me and the opportunity to work with this company uh, after I did my due diligence is just too exciting to pass up because there is a lot of great stuff that will be coming down the pipe uh, for, for Ghostfire. And I am super excited to be part of it. Uh, this is awesome. We were talking about, about this before the show, and Sean, I'm so glad for you. Um, I think this is going to be great. Ghostfire Gaming is one of those companies that is kind of off the radar, um, a, a relatively new company coming into the scene, a number of great Kickstarters that hit really good numbers. The products look amazing. Um, th- this looks like a great outfit, and the fact that they hired you tells me exactly how smart they are. Very. Oh, okay. I know I had to cut you off there. Very we, we smart. Will, we, we will go with that uh, until, <laughs> I, until I can prove them otherwise. Uh, no, no, they're very clever. And, and, and to me, it's another point uh, along this kind of, I don't know, another data point that I see of new companies thinking new ways and bringing and, and looking at the landscape and picking really good people to help them go to success. And in just the same way that MCDM uh, was bringing in James Picasso or Alyssa Teague, like, you know, you are all, all three of you are just fantastic folks and, and it's good to see that. So congratulations, Sean. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, it will not change this podcast one bit. I hope we will still continue to talk about all cool D and D things. And speaking of that, let's jump right into Tasha's. We covered the introduction last time. So now we are going to talk about the artificer, uh, first here. Yes, I mean, a lot of this is uh, the first part is all that, that, you know, there are a number of errata type changes that were already in the errata documents that have been released not too long ago. So you can see our podcast episode on that to to go through the errata of of the artificer. The the biggest thing is it comes over from Eberron. Mm -hmm. So whereas it was in another book, now it's in this book that makes it 
more friendly to plus one type rules where you choose your player's handbook and one other source. Right. Now Tasha's has a whole bunch of stuff you can choose from. Um, and it joins that and it becomes a core class rather than just being a setting specific class. So I think that's a, a pretty uh, big deal. Yeah. And you noted a, a little lore note here. Yeah, it's funny because you know, they always, they being Wizards of the Coast or anyone who ports a rule in from a, a more uh, discrete setting into the larger realm of the game. They want to show how this works in these other settings that we publish. It's like, oh, yeah, the Artificer has really always been here. Uh, it, it, it was uh, all those gnomes from Lantern in the Forgotten Realms. Yeah, they're Artificers. And yes, <laughs> sure, cool, whatever works for you. Uh, or what, what was the other? Oh, the Tinker Gnomes from Dragonlance. They're yep. Artificers, really. Uh, and sure, why not? Uh if it works for your campaign, wherever you set your campaign, go for it. But I thought it was hilarious that one of the people that they mentioned, one of the NPCs they mentioned, was Vi, who came into the public arena through Jeremy Crawford's uh, great role-playing of her in the Acquisitions Incorporated games. Uh, and she is an artificer who started at Eberron, but then traveled uh, the realms probably through uh, sigil and then into uh, into the what's the uh, magic setting that they were playing in uh, <laughs> oh god that, that, it's yeah. funny because I was just thinking about it a second ago um, yes it's, yeah it was the, the first magic setting that, that they released in book four yeah. <laughs> uh, that that whose name eludes me but you know so it's it's funny that Ravnica Ravnica, thank you. So, so Vi, uh, patterned after Jeremy Crawford's grandmother, he he mentions, uh, is just an absolutely great NPC, and yeah. that is used. That NPC is used to bridge, if you will, uh, all of these different worlds to show that art, an artificer can belong anywhere. Yeah, pretty fun. Yeah. Um, and then the, the next thing we get into is the new subclasses. And that's something that, that all of these classes have in this book. Um, and so you, in addition to getting those, those core rules of the artificer and all of the previous subclasses with their tweaks, you now get two, um, one new subclass, the armor. Right. And the armor, it's funny. It's like the team watched the Avengers or something, Sean. <laughs> yeah, I think we're we're seeing a pattern here, and we'll continue. I to see am Iron Man. Yeah, I, and it's it's something that when I, I read your notes before I actually did an in depth read of the uh, of the subclass, and you said Iron Man, and I'm like, okay, yeah, well, that makes, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, yes, we we I am Iron Man for sure. Um, yeah, is, it's fun. It's cool. Yeah, it's it's really neat. And if you know, I played a 4E game a while back where someone used the 4E rules to make the Avengers and make Marvel uh, characters. And sure. this, if you want to play a Marvel game, this fits very nicely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dig into it. You get heavy armor proficiency. Duh. Uh, you get Smith's tools. Yep. Uh, you get a supercomputer. No, sorry, not that. 
Um, you get some spells that reflect the kind of concepts that are going on. You have magic missile and mirror image and fire shield and things like that. Um, you have a feature at third level called arcane armor. And this allows you to create your, your, you have your armor work as a sort of conduit for your magic. If your armor would have a strength requirement, you can disregard it. That's pretty cool. Uh, it works as a spellcasting focus, so you don't have to worry about something in another hand. And you can doff or don your armor as an action. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of cool. And yeah. then at level three, you get the armor feature, and here's where you start tinkering with it. Mm -hmm. And you can customize your armor and choose a package of what your armor provides for you. And you can change this package choice with a short or long rest. And the two that are given here, you can envision others, but Guardian or Infiltrator. Guardian gives you thunder gauntlets. <laughs> so your gauntlets and your armor are simple weapons. Um, and you deal thunder damage when you hit them. Um, you... Uh, have a defensive field, which has a bonus action. You can gain temporary hit points equal to your level in this class, replacing you know, temporary hit points you already have. Um, and um, you can use that bonus action a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. So we see that mechanic they talked about with the proficiency bonus. Yeah, since we're, since we're really doing a deep dive here, I thought that that uh, wording was either odd or very, very specific. Uh, as a bonus action, you gain temporary, you can gain temporary hit points. Okay, so it does not automatically replace temporary hit points you have. They were very specific about can recently. Can. Um, yeah. So you do not have to. Uh, yep. But yep, if you take you out that armor. Better source. Right, right. You might have a better source. So you do not have to replace those. Um, and then the infiltrator uh, is slightly different than the guardian. With the infiltrator, uh, you can get rather than having those thunder gauntlets that do melee uh, damage, you can gain essentially a simple ranged weapon that consists of a gem-like node that appears on your fists. It has a range of 90 feet or a long range of 300 feet and does 1d6 lightning damage on a hit. And then uh, once on each of your turns, you can deal uh, an extra 1d6 lightning damage to a target that you hit. You know, I have to think, 300 feet, is that necessary? Not really. Not really. It's that sort of range, especially when you are dealing with uh, grids. Rarely, you can't fit that on a grid. Yeah. Uh, so it, that's one of those things that, it, yeah, theater of the mind, it can work, but. But it's almost like a design disadvantage, right? Like it's almost like as a DM, I don't want anyone having like 120 is already pretty long. Yeah. 300 feet, like, you know, that's where like you start messing with the, well, they're on the other side of the castle, you say. I mean, can I see them? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can see them. Well, then I'm going to attack them. What? How? Why? You know? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, if you name it Lightning Launcher, yeah, I, guess. I guess you have to launch. And... <laughs> Yeah. Apparently, 300 feet is the perfect launch uh, direction and distance. Uh, you also get powered steps as an infiltrator where your walking speed increases five feet. 
and you have a dampening field where you have advantage on your dexterity stealth checks. So you can kind of mask your sound um, as you move in this armor. And if the armor would normally impose disadvantage, then that disadvantage and advantage cancel each other out as normal. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't understand how you can say that you are running a theater of the mind game or, or supporting one where your walking speed increasing by five feet becomes something that's important. It's just, it's, it's tough. Um, dampening field. Cool. Why not? Um, it, yep. it, it makes sense. Uh, so at fifth level at, as the armorer, you get your extra attack feature where you can attack twice rather than once when you ever you take the attack action. So this is the melee uh, artificer build. Do you want to cover armor modifications? Yeah, so at ninth level, you learn how to attach your artificer infusions to your arcane armor. And now each of your armor pieces can bear an infusion and that's the boots, helmet, and weapon. Um, so each of those can have uh, infusions and you also increase the number of, the maximum number of items you can infuse by two but they have to be part of your arcane armor. Right. So uh, what, it, what that breaks down to is you can infuse separately four pieces of, uh, of your armor, the armor itself, the chest piece, the boots, the helmet, and the weapon, uh, which if you are going to try to make the artificer stand up as a melee fighter with the barbarian and, and with the fighter, I guess you kind of need to do that. Uh, so... It'll be interesting yep. to see how that plays out uh, as you get into higher levels. I, I want to see how, you know, really uh, tactically minded character builders can what, what they can do with that. Yeah. And it's also that sort of thing where you take infusions that to me often felt like you do this for another party member. Mm -hmm. And now your class is really saying you do this to you. Right. So it's that self power up issue, which in third edition was often very problematic for play where people sort of expected you to be uh, playing a role that bolsters others. And then they were like, well, actually, I'm going to spend the first three rounds of combat casting spells on myself and become a full attack fiend thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's a, definitely different than what you see in a lot of artificers, at least artificers that I've seen play. They've right. definitely been more about buffing than about uh, yeah. doing things unto themselves. So yeah. at 15th level, you get perfected armor. So your arcane armor grants you additional benefits. If you are the guardian, you can pull a huge or smaller creature that you can see uh, to you uh, if it ends its turn within 30 feet of you as a reaction. It gets to make a strength saving throw to resist that pull. And then if you do pull it to within five feet of you, you could make a melee weapon attack against it as part of the reaction. You can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and get them back after a long rest. So it's the tractor beam. D&D &D yeah. now has a tractor beam. Yeah, and then the infiltrator gets the ability that when you uh, have damaged something with your lightning lure, uh, you can force them to shed dim light. They have disadvantage on attack rolls against you, which is sort of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the next attack against the um, against it has advantage and deals an extra one d six lightning. So it's it's guiding bolt, but uh, 
but for yeah. the artificer there. Yeah, I, I'm fine with that. 15th level, all bets are off. It's reasonable. Yeah, though, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it could be even maybe a little stronger because it is just, on, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's a once thing, right? But right. For the infiltrator, but, and the yeah. tractor beam is not necessarily huge in a lot of combat. So I don't know, for level 15, this felt to me more like a lower level benefit. Yeah, no, I, I can't argue. I, I Actually, well, one thing with Infiltrator, it looks like this is, oh, is this always? It looks like it's always. Yeah, oh, that I mean, that's something you can do every time. Whenever you do, yeah, it, so then, when they take damage, it's it's just yeah. an extra bonus. So. so that is pretty strong for Infiltrator. For Guardian, then the tractor beam becomes, you know, how many times do you really need to do that? And it's even limited by your proficiency bonus. Right, mm. I, I mean, it, it's, the, it's the sticky tank versus the person that's trying to stay away and not take damage right yeah <laughs> so the guardian pull it to you and and pound on it the infiltrator is i shoot you from a distance and now you're, i've made it harder for you to hit me so you may as well yeah. not even try to come near me yep so what do you think do we want to talk about the barbarian yeah why don't yeah. we we'll uh we'll we'll just cover the the sort of new things the first new thing with uh, the barbarian and with most of the classes here are new optional class features. And I had a question about this, Teos. Maybe yeah. maybe I'm misreading or maybe I missed something somewhere. These new optional class features, they say you gain class features when you reach certain levels. In this section, uh, we offer additional features that you can gain as a barbarian. Unlike the features in the player's handbook, you don't gain the features here automatically. Consulting with your DM, you decide whether to gain a feature in this section. If you meet their new require a level requirement, these features can be selected separately from one another. You can use one, both, or none. So this isn't rather than doing getting something <laughs> yeah. at third level, you also get this if your DM says okay. Yeah, it's Merry Christmas. Is, is um, that, yeah, I, I am. Yeah, I, I did the same thing you did. I looked okay. at this and I was like, what? You didn't. And then I went back to like try to find some general section where it would have guided me on this and there right. wasn't anything. And I, I thought it was very bizarrely written that it doesn't say to you more than what it says here. So I, yes, this is, these are added benefits that the DM decides whether you get and they could say, get them all or get them some, get some of these. But it is bizarre that just, you know, it's just like, hey, barbarians yeah. now get two new things. Okay. The first new thing the Barbarian gets, if the DM allows it, is Primal Knowledge, where at third level and again at 10th level, you gain a proficiency in one of your uh, skill choices that are available to, to Barbarians at first level. So two extra uh, skill proficiencies by the time you reach 10th level. At seventh level, it's Instinctive Pounce. So seventh level Barbarians, as part of the bonus action you take when you enter a Rage, you can move up to half your speed. And I can understand these aren't horribly powerful yeah. uh, and could come in handy, especially for barbarians where you you may start at a distance and, you know, you want to close that distance quickly. That is a perfectly cromulent uh, seventh level yeah. barbarian feature, I would say. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, th th these are all fine. It's interesting. It's just interesting because one of the things we said a long time ago when we were talking about Tasha's being announced is that worry that 
you then need this book, right? Or that the book is so full of candy that, that you know, the game becomes complicated as a what do you, where do you find the rules, right? Right. And you'd love to say to people, and this has been a sort of 5e mantra is that you could say to someone new, just get the player's handbook. But here's an example where, you know, we're just early on in the number of pages and you're saying, well, even if you bought the player's handbook and you're playing a player's handbook barbarian, you actually need to refer to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it is interesting. And of course, I use D&D beyond now all the time. So I don't, I don't it's <laughs> it's all right there. But you'd have to buy it, right? I mean, that's what this is, this we, we have. But but yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah, this, that. It is true. And, and it's, it's the almost confusion like it's a company the, or something. <laughs> it's almost like it's a company. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then we get the primal paths. And so these are the subclasses where you must choose, you know, one way or the other, mm -hmm. what, you, what you want your path to be. Yep. And the first is the path of the beast, where they draw their rage from a bestial spark burning within their souls. That beast bursts forth in throes of rage, physically transforming the barbarian. Well, we have Iron Man. And now we have Hulk smash. So I, I read this and I'm like, wait, bestial spark. Like, isn't that all barbarians? Like the original barbarians, the player's handbook are like path of the wolf. And the, yeah. I guess the idea is that's more tribal. And then as I read this, I go, okay, you know, this is really going for lycanthrope. Yeah. It, or it is. shifter. Yeah. But it doesn't sort of say, you know, the description of, you know, spark of the beast, like, I guess I didn't read it the way that it was intended, and I would have loved a little better flavor up front to make it up. Yeah, they don't have a, a radi gamma radiation uh, in in the Forgotten Realms, apparently. So, when know, a heavy object hits you, you may immediately yeah. look up to the side dramatically and suddenly increase in size. No, that's not yeah. a feature. And then they give a, t a D four table for origin of the beast. Yeah. Which is, you know, a, one of your parents was a lycanthrope. You're descended from an arch druid who could shape change. A fae gave you this ability to take on bestial aspects. There's an ancient animal spirit dwelling within you. So, yeah, it didn't, it seems to me like they had um, a lot of features that they wanted to put in and they found the best way possible to put all those together <laughs> and cobbled it together. Uh, again, it, it's fine. Role-playing-wise, you can choose any of these or you can make up your own. I prefer to go Gamma Radiation myself, but hey, sure. what are you going to yeah. do? Uh, so the first uh, feature is Form of the Beast. Uh, when you enter a rage, you gain a natural weapon, which can be a bite, a cl uh, claws, or a barbed tail. Um, the bite does 1d8 piercing, and you regain hit points equal you, to your proficiency modifier if you are at less than half hit points. So you bite, you heal. Claws do 1d6 slashing, and if you hit with one claw, you can attack with that second claw as part of the same action once per turn. And the tail is a d8 piercing, and you have reach, a 10-foot reach. Uh, and if so if you hit a creature within 10 feet that you can see, or I'm sorry, if you are hit by a creature within 10 feet that you can see, you can add a your you can use a reaction to add a d8 to your armor class to see if it misses you instead. Uh, any any thoughts on that? I mean, you noted that the wording here is a, a little strange, and that it seems to uh, anything with an attack roll works. 
Yeah. They don't say like a melee attack roll. They don't say a weapon attack. They just say if a creature can, you can see within 10 feet hits you with an attack roll. So that would be spell attacks too. Uh, yeah. spell attacks. So uh, that's something I would have just said weapon. Yep. But one of the things that hit yeah. me here for this form of the beast is these three choices are very tactical and you seldom know what's really necessary tactically at the beginning of combat, but that's when you must choose. When you rage, you make your choice. And so immediately I thought, aha, later, they're going to let me choose mid-battle. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they let me do that no, <laughs> unless I, I, I missed it. So. Yeah, I, I don't either. Because uh, like fight to, yeah. you know, to heal, that's great when you know it's a rough battle, but you know, you don't often know that or, yeah. you know. Yeah, you know. I, I, I'll I'll talk about this more later, but I'm okay with this mm -hmm. because I don't want to slow combat down too much. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I don't I don't want the the players. I love giving players lots of choices. I don't like to give them lots of choices that are going that's going to slow down. So the five other people at the table have to wait for, especially a player who has to make the perfect tactical choice every time to weigh all the options. Yeah, my worry is that what that means is everybody goes with claws. Mm -hmm. Extra tech? Oh, sure. That yeah. always works. True. Yeah, that and I, I would be okay with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. Uh, at sixth level, you get bestial nature. Would you like to uh, share with us the bestial yeah, nature? I, I like this. I always like these kinds of uh, abilities that are flexible. And so here uh, you get to alter your form to help you adapt to your surroundings. You can either gain yourself a swimming speed equal to your walking speed and breathe underwater, or a climbing speed equal to your walking speed. Uh, and you can climb difficult surfaces, including ceilings, without a check. Mm -hmm. Or that when you jump, you can make an athletics check and extend your jump by a number of feet equal to the check's total. Mm -hmm. And you can do that special check once per turn. Yep. So, you know, I think these are really neat and uh, you can, these last ones to finish your next short or long rest and you choose it every short or long rest. So it's, it's a, it's tied to that. Uh, I think this is great. It's cool to, to think through this and have this feature. It's very bestial. I like it. Yep. Um, at 10th level, you get infectious fury where a number of times equal, equal to your proficiency bonus, you can force a target that you hit with your natural weapon to save or they must use their reaction to either attack another creature of your choice or to take 2d12 psychic damage. So you hit somebody, you're mad, they get mad, they don't know what to do. Uh, if they can't hit somebody that you, you choose, uh, they take damage. Rock yep. and roll. Cool. Yep. I like it. It's nice that it's very flexible, right? You can you get to make that choice. So sure. it, you know, if there's no target, you can just give them psychic. That's yeah, great. Yep. And again, you know, it's a, it's a, you don't have to think about it too much. One or the other, boom. Uh, the last feature is the 14th level feature called Call of the Hunt. So when you enter your rage, you can choose a number of other willing creatures you can see within 30 feet of you, equal to your constitution modifier. Uh, you gain five temporary hit points for each creature that accepts this. Until the rage ends, those creatures can each use the following benefit once on each of their turns. Uh, when they hit a target with an attack roll and deal damage, they can roll a d6 and gain a bonus to the damage equal to the number rolled. Uh, they can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. And then uh, uh, and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Um, and again, it's 
it goes on until the rage ends, which was something I missed the first read through. Yeah, it, it's powerful. I mean, you know, if you're in a party of six, you get 25 temporary hit points. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you are giving a D6 damage to everybody every turn. Yep. And they do attack rolls. Yeah, uh, and, and, and again, pretty... this this is not a melee. Uh, no, this is not weapon attacks. This is any attack. So spellcasters get to add <laughs> this bonus to their, their spells. As long as it's not a save, yeah. If it's yep. an attack roll, it'll yep. do it. Yep. And you get this number of times equals proficiency bonus, which will cover the adventuring day unless you're going through a tight dungeon type thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's so wow. It, that's a that's a lot. Yep. So Twenty five means... temporary hit points three times a day on three big fights in your average sort of adventure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, yeah. it's for at fourteenth level, so mm -hmm. I I don't. I don't hold anything after you get like 14, 15, 16. I, I, I've <laughs> what stopped. Is balance? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the second barbarian path subclass that is presented is the path of wild magic. This covers barbarians who are sensitive to or suffused with wild magic. Uh, I, I, I'm fine with this. The old one E AD and D gamer in me who, grew up with the barbarians, meaning they hate magic, they would never accept magic, they are anti-magic. It sort of tweaks me just a bit. Um, and so I want to, I, 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 I want to not like it, but in the end, I understand it. Um, yeah. You, 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 it's easier to, uh, to multi-class using a, uh, <laughs> using a, subclass than it is to actually multi-class so yeah. so yeah. i i don't begrudge the designers anything they do to try to make the same sort of class different using these subclasses it's just funny to see barbarians that you know have often been associated with paths of destroy magic items uh, and be completely anti-magic to be on the side of you super infused yourself with magic but yep. okay yeah. Uh, okay. Why not? Yeah. Um, th at third level, the first feature is magical awareness, where as an action, you can know the location of any spell or magic item within 60 feet that isn't behind total cover. And you know the school of the spell because, okay, I don't know. <laughs> what detect you, magic without casting it. You just, you're that you, attuned. Okay. You, yeah, you just know. Although... It's just so antithetical to this normal barbarian sort of thing. I can I can totally understand knowing the location of a spell or magic item. You can just feel it, right? But, but the school, but knowing the school that that seems to be a little mm -hmm. bit too on the nose. But okay, yeah. why not? Also at third level, you get wild surge. When you rage, you roll on a wild magic chart. Now, this chart, they're all good results, as Teos notes in, in our show but notes. But one is better than the other. It's number but three. Teos will tell you that one, that if you roll number three, that is the best one of all. And Teos, do you want to uh, let us in on why that is? Oh, because you conjure an intangible spirit, which looks like a flump for a fix pixie, which, of course, we're going to go flump. Uh, it appears within five feet of one creature of your choice. You can see within 30 feet of you. And at the end of the current turn, it explodes. <laughs> So you get exploding flump spirit. There's some really weird lore here, whoever came up with this. Like, we're going to bring a spirit. It's going to be a flump or a pixie only. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to explode seconds after you 
invoke it. Um, and then it can deal a bunch of damage within five feet. Yeah. Um, and until your rage ends, you can use this effect again on each of your turns as a bonus action. So you just yeah. a stream of exploding flumps. Yeah. I mean, or, uh, you know, shadowy tendrils lash around you and each creature that you can see within 30 feet must succeed on a con save or take 1d12 necrotic damage while you gain 1d12 temporary hit points every round. Well, and here's the interesting thing is that one doesn't say exactly what happens. I'm guessing that just happens once. I, I don't know. Because that one, it just says tendrils lash around you, but it doesn't say when it ends or, but if that's every round, that's really powerful. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would say that it has to only be the first time you rage. Yeah. Because at third level, that's, that's nuts to be crazy that every round. Um, and so I think we've just described one of my problems with this, um, which is, when the more you add, the more complicated things get, the more questions there are, and the slower it goes. Um, so now, think when you're running, a, you know, say you're a DM, and especially if you run at conventions or run for strangers where they just bring their character to the table. How many times have you had the barbarian at the table go, I rage, I do this, I go up and attack. Uh, hopefully it takes like 30 seconds and you're done. Right. And now it's I rage. Oh, let's roll the 1d8. Oh, do you have the table handy? No. Okay, let, let me pull it up. Oh, here, okay, my chart. Oh, look. And now I have to read three sentences and make a ruling on it's just too much. There's too much latency yeah. there. Um, yeah. And, and I'm with you. And with Wild Magic Sorcerers, the DM can choose not to have them roll in, in most cases. So if it's a situation where time is of the essence and you just don't want to deal with it because you know you're running late or the 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 fight's almost over and you don't need one more thing going uh on to slow it down this it, that there's no there's not that choice it's you do it what, what i do like about it is that they've made it all positive so like if it's if it's a thing that can harm creatures it won't harm your players right that's yeah. one problem that often has happened to these kinds of tables is that it, it sure. has an impact on your characters and so it's all this thought talking and discussion so in general while you do have to look at it and know what it does and there are eight of them which is maybe a bit too many um they at least are pretty pointed in what happens but i agree this is the kind of thing that does make the game a bit sluggish it's cool but it's sluggish especially if it's happening every time or even every round on top of everything you're doing that's a lot yeah more than once i've had a player say oh we had a tpk i was like what, what was it you know thinking dragon thinking behind <laughs> they're like wild magic sorcerer I'm like, yeah, okay. yeah yeah okay yeah. that 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 makes sense um at sixth level this uh path of wild magic gives you bolstering magic so you can harness your wild magic to bolster yourself or a companion so as an action you can touch one creature which can be yourself to gain the following uh one of the following benefits of your choice for 10 minutes the creature can roll a d3 whenever making an attack roll or an ability check and add that number to the d20 roll or roll a d3. Uh, the creature regains a spell slot, uh, the level of which equals the number rolled or lower. Uh, once a creature receives this benefit, they can't receive it again until after a long rest. So you can recharge your wizard <laughs> or cleric. I, yeah, I don't love that. Uh, or you can add for 10 minutes a d3 
whenever you or the person you touch makes an attack roll or ability check. Uh, yeah. Mm. So so we have a bard and a wild magic barbarian. You know, so now do we get the D4 and the D3? Do we get the D6 and the D3? Well, and you're doing this number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per day. That's too much recharging of spell slots. Spell slots are sort of... Spell slots work exactly as they're written. And as yep. soon as you start giving a bunch of them back, the power really does increase, right? It's yeah. just... Yeah, and and mm. the way that the game is... is uh trending you never once you get past third level you never run out of spell slots because there's usually like two or three combats and that's it and well but what what i will say is this empowers you you, you won't if you're being kind of you know if you're if you're monitoring it so I, I think what i would say is because i think they're set at a pretty good level but as soon as you allow more of them with pearls of power with features like this it means that that spellcaster can go way stronger. They can counterspell a lot more. They can banish more. They do all. They can do the annoying things way more often. Yep. Or classes that are meant to have very few, which I don't necessarily love, but the warlock right. suddenly have a great, much greater cycling of spells. Right. And warlocks have so many spell choices often, but very few slots. And so right. this just messes with all of that. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Yep, I I I do agree, and I mean even the first one. First of all, D three. Mm-hmm. Why 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 why? Just mm-hmm. just do the D four. Right, just, the D four would have been fine. Just 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 are you trying to sell D threes? Because uh, I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, unstable backlash is the tenth level feature, where immediately after you take damage or fail a saving throw while raging, you can use reaction to roll on the wild magic table and immediately produce the effect rolled. Um, this effect will then replace your current wild magic effect. Uh, I, I don't really have much to say about this other than really we need to roll on it again. Yeah. Uh, I, mm. If you're not a fan of it to start with, it's just one more thing you're not a fan of. Um, I, I understand that players like chaos. I, I am one of them. As the DM, it's just one more thing to keep track of one more thing to slow the game down uh i, I don't yeah, it, it's also that just... this one i think this is even worse than the first because the first is at least on your turn and if you've got if you if you're on it you know you are in the i, I rage this is what happens here we go uh, right. you could be pretty prepared for that but this one because it's a reaction it's happening in the middle of some other of the dm's turn and you're stop and pull that sheet out again and roll and uh, mm. Yeah. Do I want to do it now? How about now? How about now? Do I want to do it now? Uh, and because you can imagine, like, okay, so so I got hit. I roll. Oh, I got the exploding flump. Uh, I'll put it over. Mm, let's see. Where yeah. should I put it, guys? Yeah. Yeah. It it becomes one more thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then controlled surge is the fourteenth level feature, where whenever you roll on the mag- wild magic table, you can roll twice and choose which of the two you want, and God help us if you roll the same number on both dice, you can ignore the number and choose any effect on the table. So now it is not just, okay, I'm going to roll twice. Oh, I have these two choices. The table enters into the discussion about how we're going to do this. Now, I oh, I rolled two ones. 
which of these eight should we do? Oh, let me see the chart. Oh, well, if we put this flump here, no, wait, if we do, it just, it, be, it becomes an endless discussion of what to do. And if you're into that stuff and your rest of your group is rock and roll, do it up. But in my experience, that getting all the players to buy into that sort of game, especially when it really slows down at say 14th level uh, is, is something that can make a game slow down immensely. Yeah, it can. And, and if you're going to play this path, you know, that's great. You know, don't, don't, you don't have to listen to us in terms of whether it's fun or not. It, mm -hmm. it can, this can totally be fun, but you'll want to find a way to be efficient, right? Put them on cards or something like that. And, you know, be ready to, to, to do it so that you deploy it really quickly and then take up yeah. the least of time. And as the DM, if you have a player that wants to do this, by all means, let them play. Just know what you're getting into ahead of time. Maybe warn them about some of the pitfalls that we've discussed so you can clean it up and keep the game moving at the pace that you and your players want to move at. Yep. Guess what, Teos? Tell me, Sean. We just did a whole episode and we never even got to <laughs> Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. But you know what? I think we did a really good job of covering uh, th these two things. Yeah. So what we will do next week is we will take it easy on the uh, on the Tasha's. We will maybe just cover the next. Yeah, uh, and get through a bunch of those chapter two covered. places. And, and then yeah. we will zoom through some chapter two uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden locations. So good. thank you everyone out there for listening. The good news is there were no spoilers for Ram of the yeah. Frost made in this episode. So you could listen through the whole thing. Um, the whole and thank you to our patrons who have gone to patreon.com slash MMP and pledged a few bucks to us a month so we can pay for hosting and, and all of that good stuff. Um, and if you're a listener, we appreciate uh, you being there to discuss D&D with us. We've gotten a lot of great Twitter uh, comments, including one that I'm going to talk about next week when we get back into Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Um, you can share our link. You can share our podcast on your social media feeds, and we do appreciate it. And speaking of social media, Mr. Abadia, uh, where can people follow you? I can be found on Twitter at AlphaStream. Uh, I visit the misdirected mark forums and I maintain a blog at alphastream.org. And I agree. Uh, it does help us greatly when you share our podcast. And uh, if you can and haven't done so before, if you go and rate it, um, that helps us as well. So it shows up in people's searches. Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Down with D&D is a misdirected mark production the media arm of encoded designs so teos what would you like to do now let's go kill some monsters but hold on first i gotta roll on this table let's see i oh, can you pass me a d3 what is a d3 <laughs> you just cut a d6 in half oh yeah got it hold on let me go down to the shop you're done with dnd yeah you know me you're done with dnd yeah you know me you're done with dnd yeah you know me who's done with dnd down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. You down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Yeah, you know me.
We down with DMD.